So I apologize for breaking the fourth wall or the second speaker here in the uh, cold open, but uh, I'm here to let the listener know that uh, we've uh, been kind of tweaking how we produce this podcast. We had been using a, uh, let's say, an internet communication service run by, let's say, Bill Gates, and we've switched to one over the last uh, podcast, and now this one that's uh, run by Mark Zuckerberg. So if you prefer how Keith sounds in this podcast or sounded in Friday's podcast, let us know. That's important to us. Keith, how do you feel about how you sounded? Um, I think a little clearer, but also a little quieter. But, I mean, you guys be the judge of that. Also, you said you're talking to the listener. There's only one? Well, I use the listener as a collective noun for the whole. All right, you have me scared for a second there. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. We're in our 12th season of podcasting, our 20th season of covering Division Three football, and we welcome you to podcast number 206. Then, of course, she was very old. She was 206 where we will talk about week four of the 2018 Division Three football season, the edition for September 24th, 2018. A week in which, yeah, we thought there might not be enough big games. It almost didn't matter. There was one really, really huge game. We'll talk about that and a lot more here on this podcast. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. If you are the multi-talented threat from Minnesota, that makes you the Blake Elliott to my Brett Elliott. We'll work with that. That sounds good. Am I taking a handoff or am I catching passes in this one? I think uh, catching a pass and getting two feet inbounds. I only need to get one foot inbounds in college. I am, uh, I've am i got here at my side, actually, an archive of audio from the 2003 football season. Maybe we'll use some of it later. Maybe uh, Blake Elliott will be included. Who knows? But uh, that's not the game we're here to talk about. Uh, of course, there are other games that happen on Saturday, but uh, the big game, of course, is Mount Union defeating John Carroll on Saturday by the score of 23-10. to 10. Keith, usually when we do these podcasts, it is you who have sat down and watched like the entirety of one game, and I'm going from game to game to game because I've got a scoreboard to update, and I've got Twitter, and I've got you know any of 25 gazillion things. But this was one of those rare instances in the middle of September on a Saturday where I sat down and basically watched the entirety of a game. Well, if I understand it correctly, too, the games you have to pay for, the broadcast you have to pay for, you feel like yeah. you may you may need to um, get your money's worth out of it. And uh, certainly the game delivered. Pat, what did you think about uh, what you saw? Are we talking about the game or the broadcast part first? Well, I'm, I guess I mean the game. I'm sure the broadcast was fine. That broadcast was actually really good. I, I almost feel like I got the, the $10 worth. And I know it would have cost me a heck of a lot more to go to Alliance, Ohio and uh, and see it i jotted down like four bullet points we talked obviously extensively on the site and we'll talk a little bit about the game itself you know how each half ended with a, a defensive score for example for mount union um but i'm just going to throw out some from some bullet points these don't necessarily like tie into a storyline we can get some uh, storyline in this as well but one of the things that i noticed uh, quickly is that nobody had any time to throw. Uh, there were a couple of times when uh, Anthony Meglin, the uh, quarterback for John Carroll, did have time to throw and found guys downfield, and that really stood out. Uh, it was a, a rare instance. Um, D'Angelo Fulford on the other side for Mountain Union also did not have a lot of time to throw. Um, he, you know, he he took off and ran and was somewhat successful running the ball, but it was really uh, at the end of the game where. 
Michael Canginelli really becomes the key figure in this game. Keith, how many times have you and I watched Mount Union in a big game and Mount Union's opponent in a big game just go away from the run game and really never come back to it? Well, a lot of times they're trailing in it and it's hard to stick with the run. That's what made that that one 2004 Mary Harden Baylor comeback so legendary is that they stuck with it, stuck with it, and, and broke through in the fourth quarter for two touchdowns, helped tie the game. I think there there are so many times where Mountain Union gets a team out of what it's trying to do, especially the years, really the the past several years, they've been really really strong defensively. Some of the early Mountain Union teams were were offense heavy, but lately they've been uh, they've been defense heavy. Canginelli just had a really big uh, fourth quarter, had a, a big drive, the drive on which John Carroll almost tied the game, had the touchdown signal, had a uh, call back because of a flag. Canginelli was, uh, was, was really, um, you know, he was effective in moving the chains, and they kept giving the ball to him, and he kept getting just enough yards to uh, keep the chains moving. The, uh, the big talk, of course, about the holding call on the goal line, Darren Davis, a wide receiver for John Carroll, called for holding on a play in which Canginelli took the handoff and did barely get into the end zone. I felt like it was a legitimate holding call, and it really was the difference that uh, got him in the end zone. Uh, I had no problem with that getting called back. Yeah, and and I'm glad you said that because a lot of times the call is away from the ball, unnecessary, yeah. but there are times, and it's almost always, I notice on a, on a kick return, like a block in the back, it's always the that block in the back that springs the guy to, so you're like, I'm glad they called that penalty because it was legit. Um, I think it happens a lot with holds too. Like the if the hold is at the point where the where the run is, or if it makes a difference, then uh, then yeah, it's a legitimate call. Pretty even offensively. Neither quarterback obviously super successful because it was a great day defensively. Fulford was 15 of 38 for 153 yards. Meglin 11 of 24 for 141 yards. The difference, of course, was that the the defense for Mount Union not only shut down John Carroll after the first offensive possession. They also scored, which is something that uh, John Carroll's defense wasn't able to do. I thought, to me, it stood out that now we've seen in the past two big games for Mountain Union, the Stag Bowl against Mary Harden Baylor and here against John Carroll, when the offense doesn't have it or the offense is struggling or the other team is just really good defensively, Mountain Union can win gritty. And I think that has to be an encouraging sign for Purple Raiders fans where – they know that, you know, for a team that wins games, you know, 54-0 and, or 55-3, and, those, you know, they, they blow teams out so much, it would be hard to tell over the course of the season because you don't see a lot of situations, even over the course of games, where Mountain Union has to, to dig deep and come up with a play. And I thought we saw it on, uh, on Saturday. We saw it in the Stag Bowl. And so you're looking at most of the, the, the guys on this roster have experience um, – having to come through in the clutch. And I think that's something that would be encouraging to me if I was a Mountain Union fan. That's just a real quick synopsis of the game. There are other implications of this game, which we'll talk about uh, later on in this podcast. We'll talk about it from a top 25 perspective, and we'll uh, talk about it uh, from a, a more... Uh, we'll, we'll just talk about it again also. You'll get plenty more on this, but uh, obviously there are some other implications as well, Keith. Look, big picture, this is number one versus number 15, but a lot of us who were voting were probably putting John Carroll there sort of speculatively. In other words, they they looked pretty good in their first few games and they were coming off a 45-0 win. We're thinking, okay, they, they earned being number 15, 
but you really want to see how they do in a big game uh, against Mountain Union to, to see whether they belong there. And there are some times where Mountain Union is so good where you don't know, even if they beat a team by a lot, you know, does the teams could still be worthy of being ranked. But what I think we gained from Saturday is John Carroll's pretty darn good. Uh, they're good defensively. They'll they'll be able to hang with um, you know with other teams, not just in the OAC, but if they happen to make the postseason, you know they could be a, a pretty formidable team. And I know we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I think the biggest takeaway is that there are legitimately other teams in the OAC that will challenge. And so you got John Carroll, I think, looking like a, a strong number two in the OAC. You have um, Ohio Northern, perhaps. Baldwin Wallace and some of the others where this may be a more interesting race than usual in October and November. Uh, we have uh, Joe Sager of our uh, writing team working on a story on that. You'll uh, be able to read more about it. I think the interesting thing is, and that's something that I hope he will be able to, to talk about and get the team to talk about is that, you know, in the past, this game has come uh, most recently at the end of the season. Now, John Carroll has to run the gauntlet and it's a lot longer. And as you mentioned, the OAC is a lot better than it has been uh, even when it's been good in the past couple of years. Yeah. And another huge takeaway that just from, from watching online and, and watching the highlights is um, really did have a, a, a game day atmosphere at Mountain Union that compares to what we see around the country in these huge rivalry games. And I, in the Friday pod was sort of saying Mountain Union doesn't really have rivals in the sense that they always win. You know, even John Carroll, the, the series record is now 33-3-1 or, or whatever. But that felt like a rivalry game. When you see guys score touchdowns and right beyond the end zone, it's roped off and, and it's packed in across the, the whole end zone, all around the field, standing room only. That's what you see at, at Moan and Bell, at – Dutchman Shoes and Randolph Macon Hampton Sydney and Cordica Jug. That that's that feel. And I thought um, Mountain Union had it on Saturday. And that's Mountain Union for as great as they are. I've never been a place where the home field advantage is is a big thing. You know, we've been for playoff games, games with national you know championship trips on the line, and you don't see that atmosphere necessarily that we saw on Saturday. Right. It's not about the atmosphere at Mountain Union. It's about the machine. Another game on Saturday, which uh, has some implications perhaps, is uh, when Barry went up to center and then won in overtime, 38-35. I was watching this game uh, in fits and starts. Uh, Barry had a couple of uh, big plays and uh, got, uh, of course, tied the game near the end of regulation. Center scored with, uh, wait, I get this right, Barry scored with too much time left, and then center came down and tied. And then uh, everybody on our on our team and in our Slack channel is buzzing about uh, how center should go for two and avoid overtime altogether, even though that's not the conventional wisdom, right? You go for one and two, uh, one at home and two on the road, blah, blah, blah. Um, indeed, it ended up that uh, Barry won it in overtime when uh, they both had long field goals and Barry was the only one who could convert. Yeah, and I, I think that's a huge miss, big picture-wise, because the SAA, um, as competitive as it looks like it's going to be this season, it hasn't been a, a two-bid conference. Playoff-wise, there are only five at-large bids available this year. So if Barry's in the driver's seat, center, don't want to you know get too far ahead of, ahead of myself, but center could finish 9-1 and like they did last season. They missed the postseason at 9-1 and last season. They were 10-0 and a couple years ago, and we weren't even sure if they were a lock for the postseason. They did make it 
that year and lose in the first round to John Carroll pretty handily. So that's a big loss, and it's it's strange because originally the way I interpreted that Pool C bid is it's sort of like a second chance for teams that maybe lose one close game, could have gone either way, just as good as a conference champion, and now because conference expansion has taken up so many of these Pool A automatic bids, I think you're looking at a tough road to hoe for uh, for a team like Center and at that, you know, it's out, of, it's out of their hands a little bit. They hope somebody else knocks off Barry, and they just have to keep winning. But it's, uh, but it's tough this early in the season, and it's tough to go back to practice that next day um, and get refocused because you feel like some of your dreams have been dashed. You know, center last year at 9-1, and one, they'd played Hanover and Anderson in their non-conference games. Uh, this year it's slightly better. Instead of Anderson, they've played Maryville. Uh, Maryville is certainly a better team than Anderson and probably will show up a little bit better in the criteria, but neither of those is the kind of non-conference win that's going to separate you when you've got, yeah, just five at-large bids and typically you're going to have six or seven or eight, you know, serious contenders for those spots. Keith, you and I, of course, are both top 25 voters. We've both voted on uh, every top 25 poll that uh, D3Football.com has put out for the past 16 years. Uh, I was asked by uh, a coach via text this afternoon if we've ever had a top 25 that was exactly the same two weeks in a row. We came very close to that this week. I didn't have the records uh, in order to a- to answer that question. I just know there haven't been too many weeks where the 25 teams have been the same, let alone in the same order. So in a week like this, you know, all we had was uh, we had Wheaton uh, basically obliterating Milliken, kind of playing its way past Delaware Valley to move into the 21 spot move DelVal down into the 22 spot. I don't know about you. I can make an assumption. But for me, even in a week like this, I am still moving six or seven teams around, even though nobody on my ballot got upset. Nobody lost to a team they shouldn't have lost to. Yeah, I, the, the two losses for teams I was voting for was were John Carroll and Center. Both teams I had ranked higher, so no reason to drop either of those teams out. So I actually voted for the same 25 teams, but I wanted to con- – I considered – moving some teams in. I try to keep a watch list of, you know, five to seven teams that whose scores I care about, even though they weren't necessarily teams I voted for. So uh, took a look at all the Centennial teams. Uh, Alfred beating Cortland State was a big result this week, I thought, uh, you know, still considering Platteville, which is a team I dropped out last week, but, you know, want to reconsider in light of a new week of data. Um I ended up with the same 25, and I did a little bit of movement. The, the one that moved up a little bit for me was, was Central. I thought they just dominated Dubuque, and I wasn't necessarily expecting that. Wheaton, another one, a team that crushed Milliken. But, yeah, Pat, very rare that we have uh, no major movement in the top 25, even in a week like this. And we have a few weeks like this every season where the matchups aren't that compelling. It's all the good teams against all the bottom feeders in their conferences. And the results play out the way we expected. Even in those weeks, you usually have some sort of movement. We're uh, we're going really long in the beginning part of this podcast. For a week where we weren't sure what was going to happen, we just knew something would, and there's plenty of things to talk about. Uh, there are some things that we're not going to get a chance to talk about that we'll have to deal with in our categories later. But one more thing I want to talk about before we go to break is this uh, Carol win at Elmhurst with the fifth down. And I think I need to run this through for you, right? Yes. So what happens, for those of you who aren't familiar, 
Carroll and Elmhurst, of course, are now conference rivals. They both play in the CCIW. Carroll is driving at Elmhurst. They're in a two-minute drill, basically. Uh, Carroll has already gotten, I think, four first downs on this drive, and they trail Elmhurst. They need a touchdown. Uh, uh, Carroll gets a first down down to, I think, about the 13-yard line with 28 or so seconds left. They rush up to the line of scrimmage. They're out of timeouts. Um, the uh, umpire is, you know, holding the ball, waiting, you know, standing over the ball so they can't snap it. Finally, he backs off. They spike the ball. However, the chains weren't set. And after a uh, discussion uh, between uh, a few of the officials, they decide, but don't really tell anybody, at least not in any explicit way, that that the spike was not a play because the chains hadn't been set. So that's uh, that's not first down. But everybody in the stadium believes that that's first down. Elmer's throws or sorry, Carroll throws to the end zone on its next play, which everybody believes is second down, but is really first down. And then after this, uh, people begin to uh, I notice in the uh, in watching the archived video that uh, the uh, the referee signals signals second down after this play. The uh, uh, the headlinesman, I believe it is. I'm not real good on referee mechanics turns around to the guy uh, holding the sticks and uh, tells him to dial it back. He had it on third. He had to move it back to second. And then it's after the next play, another throw of the end zone that's incomplete, that things kind of bust loose. People finally begin to realize that this is not actually fourth down upcoming. It's third down upcoming. Although, you know, I noticed that the officials were, were consistent, you know, in signaling first down and signaling second down. They didn't really make it explicit that the uh, spike didn't count. Anyway, long story longer, the uh, w- upshot of it is on the extra play that people in the stadium think is fifth down but is officially fourth down, yeah, of course, that's when Carroll completes a pass to the end zone and they end up winning the game. In essence, it wasn't fifth down, but to everybody who was watching, it looked like it was. Right. It's not like the Colorado game back in the day where they physically lost track. They They knew what down they had it's just that it was not apparent to anybody else which would be awkward at best uh yeah communication is good communication is always good uh there's also the fact that i guess if you snap the ball and even though the umpire is backed off if you snap the ball and it's not really ready for play you could get called for a delay of game penalty that of course would also stop the clock um and it would cost you five yards but uh five yards when you need the clock stopped and you're on the 13 I, I would have taken that uh, that exchange if it had been something that I had been able to think about in real time. Yeah, and, and sometimes that, that is the smartest play, taking a penalty when uh, at some point late in the game, time right. becomes more valuable. Any penalty that doesn't have a runoff, right? Correct, sir. And this is where we would call on Frank to explain the intricacies. <laughs> but we're not going to do that in this podcast because we're already pretty long. Frank also sent us some other stuff that we're not going to be able to use in the, this podcast. Maybe we'll use it on Friday uh, and we'll talk about later where you can hear that because there's some pretty interesting things. Oh, you know what? I just need to take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by Nobody. You could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division Three football, coaches who need new equipment, people who can influence decisions to replace turf, to buy fancy scoreboards. You know how many schools have turf and need to have it replaced every eight years? Maybe ten if you don't get a lot of playoff games. Eight years. These are the people who listen to the Day3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would uh, do our best to wax poetic about your product right before we go to break. So think about it and drop me a line at uh, pat.coleman 
at d3sports.com. I will say this. I will say this. Having two podcasts a week has not uh, split our audience over two separate podcasts. There seem to be just about double the downloads for the two podcasts. So first of all, that makes me really happy. Also, it means that more people listen. So come advertise. It's time for game balls. And this week, my game ball goes to a guy we talked about quite a bit last week. That's uh, Brady Williams, the quarterback for Misericordia. And he led the Cougars someplace they've never been before to a second consecutive win. You can see more about this in Adam Turr's Read and React column from Sunday on the front page of the website. But the specifics on Brady Williams are as follows. 15 to 20 passing for 339 yards and four touchdowns while rushing for 78 yards and additional three scores in a 47 to 45 win versus Wilkes. For man game ball. Oh, good. You left me Lewis Berry. Look, we've got a strained relationship with Mountain Union these days, and I'd rather not talk about them so much. But our job on the pod is to keep it 100 with the listeners. Okay. It's time to get real on a personal level. Let's keep it 100. And that play Barry made to seal the John Carroll game was savvy, timely, and the kind of thing that people come out to see on Saturdays. It wasn't the only play he made. He had a big sack earlier in the game and six tackles. But I also go game ball here because this is a player who's been a factor since he had five interceptions as a freshman in 2015. He's 5'7", 170, so very D3 in size, but just makes up for it with big plays. On the Baldwin-Wallace broadcast last week, they were talking about how the other cornerback, Gabe Brown, is so respected that he never gets any passes thrown his way. So it was cool to see Barry show that you didn't even need a pass thrown your way to make the game-changing play. I love my defensive backs. I love my glue guys. And game balls are for closers. Let's listen to that. Here's Joe Mertens and Billy Beebe on the call for WRMU 91.1 FM. Back to pass goes Meglin. Oh, Barry! He still threw away from Meglin! He's at the 30, 20. See you later, John Carroll! Touchdown, Mount Union! Lewis Berry has just stolen the hearts out of the blue streaks. He stripped it while he was standing, Joe. Unbelievable! Stretch. Took it right out of his hands. Stretch everything. Lou Berry, WRMU player of the game, hands down. Great clip. Love the enthusiasm. Good call, guys. I really appreciate that. Hey, listen, we will never just do the absolute minimum to cover a team around here, whether they want us around or not. And we'll cover whatever is newsworthy, including, say, Friday's court date in, in Florida, if that qualifies. We will rise. We will rise. We will rise. Only one team moves up in the poll this week, and it's not far. So I'm going to talk about someone a little further down the receiving votes category, and that's Monmouth. I don't usually advocate for votes for the leader of the Midwest Conference, but I keep looking at Wartburg. They're getting enough votes to be within shouting distance of getting ranked again, and I'm thinking about them losing to Monmouth. This game was a close win for Monmouth at Monmouth, but it was a win. I just feel like Monmouth and Wartburg should be closer together in terms of votes. Monmouth's loss is to Wheaton. Wartburg's loss is to Monmouth. Let's talk about that number one vote that the Crusaders picked up. It wasn't mine, although I pondered it. But I think it's only fair to wait until Mary Harden-Baylor plays Harden-Simmons in two weeks, and then they'll have faced an opponent of the caliber that John Carroll represents for Mount Union. The Crusaders and Purple Raiders faced off in the Stag Bowl last season, and sort of under the you-have-to-take-the-belt-from-the-champ theory, we've got to see someone far outweigh what Mount Union has done to date to switch that number one vote. Meantime, voters wisely, I think, held John Carroll at number 15 after the Mount Union loss. Under the Pat theory, the result confirms that the poll was generally correct. You'd expect number one to beat number 15 in somewhat difficult fashion. From a more pragmatic standpoint, who won that voters really need to leap ahead of John Carroll? What about a game in which it held a top-ranked team to 10 offensive points and 286 yards is not top 15 worthy? 
I applaud the poll for looking beyond the basic team lost, must move down theory of polling to look at what Saturday's result really tells us about where teams should be ranked. Frankly, one could argue that they're closer than 14 spots to the Purple Raiders. Boy, I would not argue with you on that. John Carroll is definitely above Wittenberg on my ballot. Uh, Wittenberg is the number 14 team in the ranking. Uh, I think uh, you could make a great uh, argument that John Carroll is better than W&J at number 13 as well. Uh, I am indeed happy that the uh, that John Carroll stayed in the same spot. We have had instances where teams have lost in games like this and actually moved up. That didn't quite happen this week, but, uh, you know, they stayed steady and uh, they'll they'll have chances to continue to move. Other teams will eventually lose. That wasn't flying. That was falling with style. My team that takes a fall this week is Ithaca. Nobody falls out of the poll this week, of course, and only one team moves down. So instead, I'm spotlighting someone whose vote total is kind of trending downward. There's a huge gap now between Ithaca and the number 24 team, FNM, much bigger than it was last week. Voters definitely have a consensus on 24 teams. And then Ithaca leads a clump of programs along with Warburg and Ohio Northern that are kind of in that next little tier. They stick around in the poll long enough to see their home game against RPI be a top 25 battle. And then we'll potentially see the winner of that game stay in the poll next week. Funny you mentioned Ithaca. Only beating St. John Fisher by seven when we gave them credit for only losing to Brockport by seven really recalibrated what I thought of the Bombers and what I thought of the spread of teams in the Empire 8. Coaches and players are only concerned about getting the win, and rightfully so. And although margin of victory isn't always a good measure, I like to separate games into three categories. Was within one score in the fourth quarter, could go either way. Toss-up, that's one category. Eight to 21 points, two to three scores is another one, and then three or more scores. So by that method, it basically says either Brockport, Ithaca, and St. John Fisher are all equal, or Ithaca's pretty inconsistent. Anyway, my only other team that took a fall was the aforementioned Ohio Northern, which is 4-0, but beat Otterbein 13-7 one week after John Carroll beat the Cardinals 45-0. With so many teams knocking on the door around that back end of the top 25, you can't turn in too many nail-biters and stay ranked. ONU dropped from 21 to 23 for me, and is the second team also receiving votes in the general poll. Going off the beaten path, and Lake Forest won a pretty frenetic finish on Saturday as the Foresters scored 21 points and saw the lead change hand three times in the final five minutes of the game versus Lawrence. The win was secured with 18 seconds left when Alex Adams capped off a 79-yard drive with an eight-yard run for a touchdown. Jagan Cleary, the Lake Forest quarterback, went 12 for 14 on the final two drives, the first of which was a 99-yarder. Yeah, I mean, we kind of knew coming out the second half, especially in the fourth quarter, uh, we were down, you know, whatever, 7-14, two touchdowns. We knew it was going to be up to the offense to kind of get the job done. So um, when kind of the same as Big Chris said, you know, when the coaches kind of put that pressure on our back, I think we do real well responding to that. Um, and then we saw, you know, glimpses of the hope, and then we started rolling. So I think that's kind of what picked us up uh, is just each other picking us up, you know. As we said in the Friday pod, it was an ugly slate of games, but there would be some gems, and that turned out to be true. My favorite far-from-the-spotlight finish was Waynesburg, slugging it out with Geneva, trailing 7-0 for most of the game before tying it early in the fourth and then pulling off a 13-play drive in just more than three minutes to boot the game-winning field goal with 14 seconds left. Tyler Smith, John Glenn Davis, and Garrett Hepner each had 10 or more tackles for the Yellow Jackets, who were facing a Golden Tornadoes attack that bothered to attempt only five passes, completing one for eight yards. It was almost enough, as Waynesburg was one quarter from an 0-4 start before the rally. Geneva had a key false start on fourth and two, and Tyler Perrone completed his first five passes on the winning drive. For all the teams who hold up their four fingers for digging the deepest when the circumstances required it, Waynesburg's win was a prime example. 
I don't know how many times we've talked about Waynesburg on this podcast, uh, Keith. Uh, I thought I was the pack guy. That's when I fell for leader of the pack. For my most surprising result, Keith, I'm digging deep into the preseason rankings and revisiting a conference that I visit on a semi-regular basis in this podcast, and that's the UMAC. We picked three teams to be tied for third when we did the preseason predictions and kickoff, and two of those finished in the bottom half of the league last year. Those two played each other on Saturday, and it was a not very close game at all as Martin Luther rolled past Greenville 63-28. to Martin Luther got off the mat last season, winning more games in 2017 than in the previous three years combined. And while the win itself isn't so unexpected, the way it happens certainly is. The Knights rolled up 711 yards of total offense, rushing for 306 of those and completing passes to 12 players in that big win. Wow, 7-11. Yeah. For my most surprising result, I was going to go Wash U beating Carthage by 20, but then I saw that Widener 69 Albright 0 score. Both teams were 0-3 coming in, hadn't had a losing season in years. Albright had won between 6 and 10 games each season going back to 2010. The Lions, though, are in the midst of a nightmare start in which opponents have scored 37 touchdowns to their 6, and although the schedule was daunting, this is tough to watch. Widener apparently got off the dang interwebs, and Mike Kelly wasn't having to coach effort this week as his defense held Albright to negative 29 yards rushing while the offense scored 6 first-half touchdowns. Keith, my stat of the week comes as part of the beatdowns that MIAC teams foisted on their opponents this week, as well as the lengths to which coaches went to to try to limit those outstanding scoring margins. Outstanding to the point where the five winning Mayak teams outscored their opponents by a total of 227 to 3. St. John's and St. Thomas each uh, played multiple quarterbacks. The Johnnies gave carries to 12 players, for example. There's some of the ways they tried to keep the score down. But the one that jumps off the screen for me is Concordia Moorhead, which gave carries to 18 players on Saturday in a 55-0 win versus Hamlin. Uh, 18 guys, that's a school record. And even though there's no Division Three record for most players to get carries in a game, there's something to be said for finding a way to give 18 players somewhere between one and seven carries on a given Saturday. Well, my stats of the week come from Greensboro's no-good, awful performance against Farrell. It wasn't the only unfortunate bad game this weekend. Earlham lost 59-2, Grinnell 91-0, and Albright we mentioned. I don't mean to pile on. The Pride's 81-0 loss to the Panthers produced one of the ugliest box scores I've seen in 20 years of doing this. Negative 11 yards of total offense, 0 of 13 on third down, three first downs, 12 punts, seven penalties, and on it goes. Farham even kicked a 24-yard field goal in the waning seconds to try to keep from scoring another touchdown. Farham also did some good things, so... Rather than present everything in a negative, Ferrum did have eight yards of play. And look, some games are mismatches and should be avoided, but this seemed like a fair non-conference matchup. The Pride were 1-1 one and one and competitive in their earlier loss, and I just didn't see this one coming, nor did I see that 91-point margin in, in St. Norbert and Grinnell. i got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm doubling back uh, one spot just to mention that uh, Mike Kelly was boasting about, not boasting, I guess he was pointing out the great defensive stats that uh, Widener had against Albright or the poor rushing stats that Albright had against Widener um, in responding to some other news organization on Twitter. And I responded back to him. I said, why give them the information? Make them search for it. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now's the time in the podcast where we go to Twitter. And we are looking at a tweet from uh, Max who is uh, at mstella underscore 41, asking, 
What do you think of the Mac race this year? Some traditional basement teams doing well this season. That's definitely true. We talked about on the Friday podcast how uh, FDU Florham is, uh, was in first place in the conference, obviously early on, and they don't have to play Delaware Valley, uh, but they lost to Lyco. We got the great uh, two wins by Misericordia here in, in early going. Uh, Lyco hadn't, hasn't been in contention in the conference for some time and is now, but I still feel like even though Widener is down, um, they're only one and one in conference and everybody still basically has their own destiny in hand. So I still kind of feel like in the end, the usual suspects or the people who we think are going to contend are probably going to contend. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the standings as they sit today, you have a separation between the six bottom teams five teams up top, but they're they're not all the usual suspects. The five teams on top would be DelVal, Lycoming, Stevenson, Misericordia, FDU, Florham. You mentioned Widener in there. You're right. We shouldn't count them out either. And, and in fact, it's probably more likely that Widener gets back into this thing than Florham or, or Misericordia sustains what are fairly surprising starts. And you'd have to say the, the Lyco start is surprising too. But I think if you boil it down right now, you got DelVal, you got Lyco, you got Stevenson all in the mix, and then you have those other three that bear watching. What may end up happening is this ends up as a conference where uh, teams pick each other off over the course of the season, which is great from a fan standpoint. It's fun to watch, but then whichever team emerges victorious, they get a terrible matchup in, in the first round of the playoffs, and you don't want to be in Pennsylvania and, and, and have two losses or three losses because geographically you could get sent to Ohio, you could get sent to upstate New York, you could draw, get a real tough draw in the first round. Yeah, with Brockport being so far west in New York, not all the New England teams can get there, so that might send a, if there were a two-loss MAC champ, maybe that's something that could happen. A two-loss MAC champ could go to Wesley. So yeah, obviously it's great for fans in that you get to see competitive matchups and things are up in the air until the final week but then yeah come week 12 you kind of pay for that yeah i think right now though of the races across the country the mac is probably the most exciting the saa and the centennial right there as well hey can i ask you fans a question you made it this deep into the podcast we solicit your questions every week i got one for you Hit us up at D3Football and D3Keith on Twitter with your answers. This came up in a discussion among some Eagles fans who had seen a highlight of the Clay Matthews sack against Washington. The NFL is legislating defensive play right now in an impossible way, just asking players to, to tackle people and then not fall on them. It's sort of uh, unbelievable. But more importantly, they're getting rid of one of the most exciting plays in the game, a sack. So I'll, I think this is probably a turning point for the rule. It got us thinking. What are your favorite types of football plays? Like, what gets you most excited during a game? Off top, I said ball carrier running someone over, defensive back hit that jars the ball loose, open field juke, blocked punt. I'm, I'm weirdly partial to, to punt blocks. And then a pick six, the kind when someone steps in front, takes it back for a touchdown, and, of course, acrobatic catches. Why don't you tweet us your favorite three to five? Pat, what are the, the types of plays that get you most excited during a game? I think, the, I think a strip six is certainly on that list. Um, you know, hopefully you can still do that in the NFL. Maybe just don't knock the guy over. Uh, of course, uh, you know, still doable in college. Uh, I love a defensive two point conversion cause it's so rare and it's really like an all or nothing deal. You know, someone could block the kick and return it 80 yards and get tackled just short of the end zone and score nothing, or they could score and it ends up being a three point swing. But, uh, when I think of ball carrier running someone over, here's what I recall. Quick out of the backfield again to Tice. Across the 10, to the 5. Fights his way in. Touchdown, St. John's. 
My goodness, what a bold call by Jimmy Gallardi. And a swing pass out of the backfield for 14 yards and a tie game pending the extra points. Pat, we all thought he was going to kick the field goal. He sent the, the offense back out and ran the same play he got uh, about 11 yards on the play before. And what a huge run. He bowled, Matt Capone was the one who had a chance to make a tackle about around the one or two yard line and was bowled over on the way in. A much younger Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan on the call for D3Sports.com. Keith, in my mind, I recalled us calling this better, but that's what uh, 15 years of hindsight will do, I guess. Or, as ESPN.com points out, 5,391 days. That's how old the Associated Press game story is on their website. I will say that highlight brought back a visual for me where I had kind of forgotten this play, but it's on the near side of the Sa- of Salem Stadium, right toward the street. Yeah, toward the locker rooms, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember this play, and it was a, it was a key play in the St. John's Mount Union Stag Bowl in 03, the second one where uh, where the Johnnies won. Yep, that's the final play of the first half, and instead of uh, kicking a uh, kicking a short field goal, they elect to go for it, and they uh, get the momentum and the lead going into halftime. Hey, you make a Stag Bowl, you are part of history forever and ever. That's a pretty deep thought, Keith. Every thought of yours is a friend. Well, we've got a bunch of thoughts that we want to get to, and uh, every thought of ours is a is a friend of yours. Hey, look, there were a lot of weird low scores this week, 12-9, 18-14, 14-9. Austin, who we should shout out for its win against Hendricks, got its 12, not by four field goals, but by, well, Pat, why don't you guess how we got 12? All right, I won't look. Officially, I'm going to guess... Well, since you say it's odd, I'm going to take a seven, a three, and a two rather than four threes or two sixes or some combination of six and three. Is this a defensive two-point conversion that would account for Hendricks getting nine points instead of ten? Nah, you were correct. You got the seven. They scored, kicked the extra points, so the seven, kicked the field goal later, and added a safety. Uh, This was my runner-up for stat of the week out of week four, but the Worcester-DePaw game is statistical anomaly central. That made so much more sense when I wrote it down. It sounds so weird coming out of my mouth. But in this game, the teams combined for negative 31 yards rushing. And the winning team, Worcester, won with negative 50 rushing yards. Now, you don't get to negative 50 without some help. And Worcester's punter dropped a snap, which resulted in the Scots losing 30 yards. But note that even without that, the team still had a negative rushing total for the game. Hey, there was a pretty cool moment from that game broadcast, though. Pat, when uh, the broadcasters were saying how Worcester needs a pick on a late drive with less than four minutes to go to preserve a three-point lead. And as they're speaking, lo and behold, Bo Greenwood comes up with a diving interception along the sideline, and the Scots hang on for a key North Coast win. Defensive back stream right there. I saw a tweet from Greenville with a photo of players replacing divots on their grass field, and I was thinking how that has gone by the Wayne side in Division Three football. Some years ago, we passed the threshold and Division Three football became majority turf. But these days, we have just 32 grass fields remaining by our records. Just 13% of Division Three plays on grass. Hey, we might not be doing made-up words anymore, but the Wayne side would be one of them. Yeah, I'm, I'm letting that. I'm going to let that ride. I think you have to. Uh, Southwestern goes for two to tie with a minute 31 left at Louisiana College and fumbles, losing. 21-19. Neither website had a great description of the final play and personal annoyance. Can't stand when a game story is written in um, oh. like result and then immediately jumps from like 
amazing game ending play to in the first quarter we kicked <laughs> off and scored this touchdown i thought uh, you were i thought you were going to say it would be the bulleted form of recap i i don't uh, particularly like those anyway i didn't mean to pick on the websites it was just a amazing ending devastating for the pirates who we talked to in one of our summer podcasts and we expected uh southwestern to be pretty good but it was uplifting for the Wildcats, who lost 78-0 to Alcorn State in their opener, probably a game that shouldn't have been scheduled. Money, money, allowed, money. Allowed 57 to Harden-Simmons in Game 2. Southwestern held Louisiana College to 7 yards on 29 rushes, but couldn't get the last yard in the Montclair State is pretty quietly 3-0 to open the season after winning 17-14 at Christopher Newport in overtime on Saturday. Last year, the Red Hawks went 5-5. Five Lost two of those games by one score, but they've turned each of those two results so far headed into a game at Kane on Friday night. And we talked to Kane on Friday in the Friday pod. They managed to score on Saturday, uh, but lost to Southern Virginia 14-9. You mentioned surprise unbeatens as Montclair State or Sinus, also among that group. Uh, they're 4-0. It's come against the soft underbelly of the Centennial, though. The next three games are Johns Hopkins, Muhlenberg, and Susquehanna, so we'll see if the Bears are for real. And can I get a pronunciation 101 shout out? You can take Worcester. I get her signs. Pronunciation 101. Univistic. Monon Belt. Univistic. Muhlenberg. Gallardi. German Ariel. Her sinus. Yeah, that's how you pronounce her sinus. Keith, the worst botch I've ever heard of her sinus was at the press box in a game in the Midwest when her sinus was one of the out of town scores that was being announced. Uh, the the first attempt at pronouncing it, the PA guy said Eurisnus. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, Ursinus, it seems like a legitimate, never seen that before. It seems legitimate the way it's spelled. Ursinus, at least that's the way it's spelled. Uh, Eurisnus is like saying Algahaney. Yeah, it's like moving some vowels around. There were some great nuggets in box scores this week. I've talked about some of them already, but I really loved this one from the North Central North Park game. After North Central punted on its first possession and fumbled a punt away to give its second possession away, the Cardinals embarked on a 21-play, 91-yard drive and took 8.47 off the clock to put up the first points of the game. It got a little easier from there as North Central went on to win 35-0. One of the reasons I love this segment is because you notice stuff that I wouldn't notice and hopefully vice versa. 21-play drive. How about that? Yeah, I love it. 21. It's really difficult to have 21 plays over 91 yards. Right, like mathematically, you have to... There's a lot of doubling back there. There's some right. penalty yardage and stuff, I'm sure, too. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, like you're getting your four yards on third down and three. Yep. Uh, Baldwin Wallace, wide receiver Jordan Leverett, had six catches for 109 yards in the Yellow Jackets' 34-10 win against Heidelberg on Saturday. And best I could tell, he was on his best behavior. Well, that's good. Folks, I am trying to come up with a theme clip for each of the 28 conferences. That's probably going to be next to impossible, but I'm going to do what I can. So... We've got, uh, we've got You by Mac Miller for the UMAC, uh, the classic Bobby Darren recording of Mac the Knife for the Mac, the New Jack City soundtrack clip for the NJAC. We've run that a lot. Leader of the pack from the single. As you heard that just a moment ago. That's for the PAC. There's a couple of others in the bank that we haven't had a chance to use yet, but you can probably tell where my kind of worldview and my musical influences are. If you have thoughts for clips, whether they're from movies or from songs, that can be, you know, passively used or reasonably used for any of the other conferences in Division Three. Tweet it at me, email it at me, you know, whatever. I am, uh, I am on the lookout for compiling another twenty-four or so of those. I mean, just while you were talking, I was trying to figure out how you're going to get an old Dominion ODAC, and I was thinking maybe you got the ODB, the old Dirty Bastard. I don't know. Yeah, we'll we'll figure something out. 
and uh, we'll do our best. I, I still feel like there's some possibilities out there. And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, number 206, released on September 24th, 2018. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like this podcast, and we hope you do, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. That will help other football fans find it. You can also leave comments for us on the blog page. We read all of those as well. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos. You can find him at djmentos.com. The audio of Jig and Cleary comes from Lake Forest and Cam McGuire, uh, the Mountain Union play-by-play from WRMU. Thanks to Joe Mertens. We appreciate you guys uh, putting that uh, content out there for us to use. Thanks, of course, also to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter, and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook as well. Keith, that was not our best call, obviously, but I still think uh, we did a heck of a lot better than Pam Ward did on that game. I do not remember Pam Ward's call. In fact, I don't know if I remember any ESPN call ever. A lot of the 2003 game clips are used in the Gilardi introduction video at the Gilardi Trophy Ceremony, so I see them annually. Yep, makes sense. And every time I hear her mispronounce Zahar's name, it drives me crazy. As it would. I'm sure I made a mistake once over the 20 years. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody.